Good morning. My name is Jason. I'm one of the uh, elders here, um, and I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get a Bible. Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41 will be our primary text this morning. Acts chapter 19, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in the right side of the New Testament uh, of your Bibles. Acts is after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you get to Romans or 1st, 2nd Corinthians, go back to the left. Acts 19, verses 21 through 41. This, I think, is our 51st installment in our Acts series. We have about 10 or 13, 10, 10 or 13, 12 or 13 left, something like that. Um, I've lost count, but I haven't lost joy. I'm really, really grateful uh, for what God has been up to in our church through this particular book of the Bible. And in his kindness, as we have started this new journey as a church from September of last year, he uh, has seen fit to take us through the beginning of the church, of his bride, of his people. And so this has been really, really good. Um, Before we jump in, I want to sort of speak to a little bit of the cultural moment that we uh, are in as a neighborhood, as a city, as a country. Um, Many of us uh, perhaps woke up today and it was just like any other Sunday. It was just like any other day um, in Logan Square, Hermosa, uh, Wicker Park, Bucktown, wherever, you know, you call home, Avondale, uh, Humboldt Park. Uh, But for many of our friends and neighbors, this wasn't a typical Sunday. For many of our uh, neighbors from Latin American countries, this was a very terrifying uh, morning. This was a very tragic and difficult morning to step into. And re- regardless of your political persuasions, I would implore you to the good news of Jesus, which uh, the words of Jesus, rather, that says that the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the question for us today, regardless of how these particular cultural moments are striking us, the question is, what does it mean for you? What does it mean for me to be a good neighbor? Not, are you Republican, are you Libertarian, are you Democrat, are you Progressive, are you Conservative, do you agree, do you disagree? What does it mean for you to be a good neighbor? That's what the question always is before the church. And and I want to implore us, I want to invite us, and really what I've realized these past couple of weeks is I don't know enough. I, I attempted to think through and understand, but at the end of the day, I can't understand what my neighbors are going through by reading blogs and the New York Times. Can I get an amen? I actually have to know my neighbor. I actually have to befriend them, ask them questions, and, and learn from them. And so the elders and some of our staff uh, next month are going to be joining some folks. Thank you to Dan Gray for your invitation. Joining some folks in Hermosa at Grace and Peace Ministries to learn what we do not know, to listen to our neighbors as it relates to the good news, as it relates to immigration, as it relates to our understanding of what it means to be good neighbors uh, next month. So I ask for your prayers in this. Uh, and yet, if this is like, you know, preacher, I'm glad you're saying something. Thing, but this is happening right now. If there's a way that, that you know that you're experiencing that we can be a good neighbor today, would you please let us know? Um, and something that takes place in moments like this is our idols get exposed, don't they? Because some of you, like, right away, when, when I started talking about this, you're just like, all right, I'm just going to put my head down until he gets to the Bible, and then it's just going to be fine. But I don't even want to think about this right now. It's so frustrating. Whatever it might be, it's revealing an idol. Or if you're like, finally, somebody is finally talking about the thing that I love. Yes and amen. Here we go. It's revealing an idol. It's really frustrating, isn't it? Like, no matter what, in celebration and sorrow, idols get revealed all the time. And let me remind us, idols may not be little figurines that we put up in our houses, though they may be. 
though they may be particular things, things that bear our own image, like our children that we idolize, put up on our walls, put up all of their participation ribbons, and vaunt all kinds of celebrations their way. They, they may be physical and visible, or they may be internal. Because at the end of the day, what an idol is, is anything that we build our lives upon. Anything that we build our lives upon, anything where we find our joy, anywhere where we define our life, anywhere where we find our sustenance, our, our joy, our happiness, and our sustenance. And so, therefore, for each of us, what has been taking place in Paul's second missionary journey here is he has been confronting idols. And in, in 2009, uh, Dr. Timothy Keller spoke to a room full of pastors, and as he walked through this particular passage, he he helps us to see exactly what's going on. What the Apostle Paul does is he observes idols. We see this in, uh, in Corinth when he rocks around and sees that there are idols throughout the entire city. And then he exposes idols is what, what we'll look at today in Acts 19. And then we see that Jesus destroys idols. And so through Acts, we have not been able to get away from our idols. We have to look at them. We have to face them. They are being exposed before us. There are not some in this room who have idols because they are much worse at life than we are. Um, but we all have idols. We all have things that we trust other than Jesus to give us hope, security, safety, and joy. We build our lives upon them. And so what we see here in Acts is that God is gracious through Paul in this particular case to observe idols. He knows them. He exposes them. He brings them to the light, and he will destroy them. And so we have a choice to make. Here's our choice, church. You can confess them, or you can justify them. You can confess your idols, or you can justify your idols. In other words, you can just say, Lord, we're singing this song today, and it says that your promises are yes and amen, and I'm just not trusting that actually you are my yes and amen. I've trusted something else to give me hope, to be faithful to me, to give me security. We, we can confess that, or we can justify it. Well, you see what had happened was, and then it had rained, so like that's why I was giving my life to this. And it's going to be okay because it's not that big a deal because everybody does, right? You know, oh, we have this track record. We even find a deep cut Ezekiel like 37 verse. It's like, that's why it's okay. That's why I can do this. We like never read the Old Testament until we're trying to justify our idols, right? And all of a sudden, we find a verse, we memorize it, we shellack it on a plate and see, I don't actually have to say that my kids are my idols because I'm supposed to train them up in the way they're supposed to go, right? Yes, which is to Jesus, to learn to die to themselves and be resurrected to new life. And if your kids are going to learn to die to themselves, you've got to die to them first as the ones that are your idols. They're not your idols because they'll never love you back the way that you're hoping that they do. Only God can do that. So this is the task before us in Acts 19, 21 through 41. So please hear these words. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods." 
And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Articus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the uh, Arizaks uh, were his friends of his, sent to him, and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense of the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, seeing then that these things cannot be denied. You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we need your help. I need your help. Even this morning, considering this passage, Father, we together realize our great need for you. And so we ask for your help. Father, make clear your word, make clear your truth, uh, and over and against all things, would you make yourself clear? Would you make yourself known in our hearts and our minds today? And we need your help in this because we can't figure you out by ourselves. You are the God who is known by your grace, not by our hard work. And so I pray, Father, would you graciously, not because we are deserving, but because you are good, would you make clear your character today? Because it's in your character that we find our joy. It's in your character, relationship with you, that we find our peace and our hope. And so, Father, help me. Help me to be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word. I pray that you would protect even my own words from going into places that you do not intend and saying things that you do not desire. May I speak in such a way that honors you and your word and is clear, clearly used by you. So, God, I ask that you would speak uh, in this moment. Help us, Father, uh, to be willing and ready to be laid open and laid bare to confess 
our sin, knowing that you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What a gift that your blood cleanses, washes, purifies us, and does the exact opposite that our idols claim they can do. And so I pray, God, even right now as we build up walls in our hearts that don't want to listen, don't want to confess, don't want to repent, would you tear down those walls of hostility? Tear them down that you might build us up anew, afresh in the kind of resurrection power that only you have by the work of your son. And so we ask all of this and a thousand other things that we don't even know to pray. Would you be at work through your word this morning? We ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Let's look at verse 21. Now after these events, we got to pause right there. What events? Some of you are like, this is my first time ever at this church. What exactly is this pointing to? Some of you are like, it's been a week. We need a little refresher course. So something's been going on in Ephesus. It's been pretty powerful. Because Apollos came into Ephesus, if you remember, at the very beginning of this particular chapter, preaching the good news of Jesus and seeing people come to know Jesus. But his understanding of the holistic ministry of the gospel was incomplete. It was accurate, but it was incomplete isn't it good to know that the, that the Lord continues to use us even when we have incomplete knowledge? Even when we don't know everything, he uses us. If you need that encouragement today, I give you Apollos, being used by God when he had incomplete knowledge, did not have the full understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul comes to Ephesus in Acts 19, Apollos goes actually to Corinth. Paul comes and he begins to interact with those who have heard Apollos preach and they don't know yet about the Holy Spirit. And so if you remember, we looked at this last week, that Paul begins to preach and teach and help them understand that they can be filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues, a language communicating with God. They prophesy, communicating that message to God's people. And there's this building up and there's growth of the church. But not everyone likes the building up and growth of the church. There are these high priests who try to take the name of Jesus without surrendering to the name of Jesus. And they try to exercise demons. And the demons are like, we have no idea who you are. We know Paul. We know Jesus. Who are you, bro? Like, I don't know you. And they expose them, throw them into the streets, naked, laid open, laid bare. And then what takes place next is that people start confessing everything. They become followers of Jesus. They go and get their magic books. That's right. They just go and get stuff and start burning it to the tune of 50,000 pieces of silver. There is this repentance. There is this confession. There is this word, this great word there that says they divulged everything. In other words, they didn't get caught. They were exposing their sin. Right? Isn't it true? Some of us are like, if somebody brings it up, I'll talk about it. If somebody asks me a direct question, I'll let them know. Ooh, but did you notice that? They weren't waiting. They were divulging. They were saying, here's what's going on. Here's what's in my closet. Here's what's in my house. I just want to burn it. Why? Because Jesus is better. Jesus is better than my magic books. Jesus is better than all of the idols that I have trusted. What I love about this is the specificity of it. What they didn't say is, yeah, we trust in all kinds of earthly powers. We ask for your prayers, but also my grandma's sick. So can you pray for that too? Right, This real general confession in order to safeguard them from specific repentance. General confessions, we always use it. That's really wise. That's really loving. But we don't actually want to get specific about what we're actually doing, what's actually going on. They're bringing out their libraries and saying, here are the words we're trusting, not the words of Jesus. They burn those things. It's costly, 50,000 pieces of silver. These are the events that are going on right? These are these Holy Spirit moments that are happening within Ephesus, and the entire city is put on notice. So after these events, Paul 
resolved in the spirit. Don't you love that? He is resolved after all of this to pass through Macedonia, Achaia, and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. In other words, he stays in Ephesus and he sends out his two fellow ministers of the gospel ahead of where he is going to begin to do the preliminary work of the gospel and of church planting where he is going. And Paul stays in Ephesus. This is really key because the story we're about to read is taking place in Ephesus. Look at verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trays. And before we get to what he said, notice what's taking place. The way is a way in which Luke, the writer of Acts, speaks about the church. He has done this with less frequency the further we've gone into Acts. And therefore, in using this language, he pulls us back to the original inception and power and persecution, if you will, of the church. Linguistically, he takes us back to that moment because now we are about to experience a significant bout of persecution for the church in Ephesus. And so, isn't it true that that kind of distinction of calling it the way is this exclusivity? is this singular worldview, is this all-encompassing universal truth of the way. I'd like to suggest to you, church, the culture we are in, the city we are in, is still reacting negatively to the way. Because what the way suggests is that all other ways lead to the exact opposite place, not to a place of flourishing, of human flourishing, and of ultimate and eternal life in Jesus Christ, but actually to separation from God. So a polytheistic or a multi-viewed sort of way, a relativistic way that your way is your way and my way is my way always reacts negatively to the way. And that's what's taking place here in the first century. But it's happening through a guy, Demetrius. Demetrius' story is going to unfold for us a little bit, but we're going to start to meet his idols and you're going to be tempted to judge him. You're going to be tempted to go, oh, Demetrius messed up, man. Like this dude, wow, right? Just let Demetrius be a mirror for your soul as, as I need to let him be a mirror for my own. See, Luke begins to expose those things already. Notice his trade. He's a silversmith. And he's not just a silversmith, but he, he makes shrines to Artemis. We'll get to this goddess in a minute. And it brought no little business to the craftsmen. In other words, he was this, this point leader of this guild of tradesmiths, all who had a similar vocation in making these wares unto Artemis. And so he gathers up this guild of workers, and others hear about it who are in different trades. They all get together and start talking about this. Now let's remember, Paul hasn't said a word. They're reacting to what they know he's going to say because they heard what happened with the magicians. They're like, y'all, it was 50,000 50, pieces of silver, and we make stuff out of silver, and so we're kind of nervous. He's going to cost us some money too. And so they begin to preemptively come together. See, we aren't just threatened when our idols are threatened. We're threatened when we think they might be threatened. When we're in any kind of environment, because when an idol is threatened, we know ours is next. When someone, someone's idol goes down, we're scared that ours is next. This is why when someone in your group exposes a particular thing in their heart, we have this temptation to be quiet, 
right? If they begin to expose not only their addiction to pornography, but their addiction to control and to lust and to instant gratification, if they get that, we're like, shoot, there's a couple of things like that in my life. We'll pray for you, brother. That, that's serious. That's serious. I don't, we don't have, Demetrius is wiser than you if that's your response. Because he's like, if the magicians are giving up everything, we're next. There's wisdom in that. So they get them all together. Look at the latter half of verse 25. Men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Saying what? Saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Here's what I love, church. This is so helpful for us. By God's grace, when we're faithful in our communication and incarnation of the gospel, non-Christians will begin to preach our message for us. Did you see this? Paul's not saying anything. Demetrius, who doesn't believe and who is threatened, he's like, here's the message. Here's what they say. It's terrifying. It's going to cost us everything. I'm not ready for that. He gets the gospel in a way many of us, brothers and sisters, we often fail to get. He begins to proliferate and communicate the gospel. See, when the church begins to set a fresh culture within a neighborhood, within a city, that culture is put on notice. They begin to propagate and communicate the goodness of Jesus just because they know him from us. They will know we are Christians by our love. They get an understanding of the good news simply by our interaction and by our culture and by us as a people. Oh, this is really exciting. He says they're they're not gods at all. In other words, we believe that they are gods, but Paul is saying that they're not. Verse 27. Here's where the idol begins to get exposed. And there is a danger. Not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worships. Demetrius gets his people together. And he knows he needs to communicate to them to action. He needs to actuate them, inspire them, get them ready to respond, to defend their idols. Here's one way that you know you have an idol. You have to defend it, right? When it's threatened, you defend it. You start mounting up. What did you say? What did you say? What did you say about my kids? What did you say about my work? What did you say about my money? What did you say about my culture? What did you say about my ethnicity, right? We mount up and get ready to defend our idols, This is what Demetrius is doing, and here's the three ways that he does it. First, he says our trade is about to go down, our work, our vocation. And he says we're all in this together. See how he's using this uniting language, right? We're all in this together. Our trade is about to go down. Not only that, but our temple. Ooh, our temple. Our temple is threatened. It's going to get torn down too. It's going to be despised. There's the word. It's going to be despised. Not only that, but he says our goddess, the great goddess Artemis, she is also threatened. What we would love to ask Demetrius is that if your God is so great, if your God is so powerful, then why do you need to defend it so vehemently? Why in your idol's time of need do you need to run to her defense? Is she not there to defend and protect you? This kind of logic befalls us when we are so enamored with our particular idols. The local legend has it that um, a stone from outer space, you and I would call it a meteor, right, hit close by 
Ephesus in one of the most profound acts of solidarity for those who loved the goddess Artemis. They found this meteor and they thought it looked like one of the things that these men had created, like one of these iconographs, like one of these icons, like one of these idols that they had made. And therefore, there was this stability, that feeling like this god had come down to them. See, Artemis, or Diana, as the Romans would call her, was viewed as the goddess of fertility, not only of human life, but of the soil and all of harvest, that she was there to provide safety and security. In fact, that's what her name, the the root word of her name is safety and security. Isn't it interesting how threatened those who worship safety and security feel, not when Paul is speaking, but when the word of what he is speaking is merely traveling around. So he says we need to protect our work. We need to protect our temple. We need to protect our goddess. In other words, it's their work, it's their place, and it's their person. It's their work, it's their place, and it's their person. Oh, there is nothing new under the sun. These are things, isn't it true, that we often defend on a regular. My work, my place, my person. Now, If that wasn't bad enough, Luke has sort of already outed Demetrius that that's actually not the real issue. Because all idols mask themselves in virtue. All idols mask themselves in virtue. Because isn't it true, like looking from that, and maybe this is what you're thinking right now. Well, you should want to protect your work. It's an important thing. God gave it to you, right? Adam created, or God created a garden, put Adam in it, and gave him a job. A job is good, right? God gave the people of God land, a place to call home. God gives us one another. We have our people, right? And so idols always mask themselves in virtue. But Luke has already outed Demetrius. Remember, what is he really worried about? What's the first thing out of his mouth when he gets his little tribe to together. Men, you know that from this business, we have our, what's that word, church? Wealth. Wealth. Demetrius is greedy. Now, I've I've been around for a little bit, not a lot, just a little bit. 15 years of ministry about. I have never had anyone send me an email or want to sit down and confess the idol of greed. Ever. Ever. Yet, I have had a lot of people accuse somebody else of being greedy. I've done it myself. Literally, no one has ever confessed this to me. Ever. Pastor, I just want to sit down with you. I just love money. I just love money. Why, why do we not do that? Because somebody else always has more. Because someone else's greed is always more clear to us than our own, right? And therefore, what we do with our idol of greed in particular is we mask it in virtue. This is just... This is just my my person. This is just my place. This is just my work. And we use this really good language to really cover a deep and dark and broken thing that we're terrified to think about life without the money and more of it. In other words, that's where we find our safety and security. Well, in that particular moment, Demetrius found himself a hearing. Look at verse 28. When they heard this, They were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Why are they angry? You have to get angry. You have to get angry when your idols are exposed because it threatens everything. When you build your life upon something, if that something is threatened, your whole life is threatened. If that thing gets exposed, then your whole life is exposed. Verse 29, so the city was filled with confusion, 
And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Articus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Arasarchs, who were his friends, friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture in to the theater. Okay, so they pull these two Christians, because they saw him with Paul. They pull these two Christians because they want blood. For what? A message they haven't even heard. They just heard about it, right? They pull these guys in. They're frustrated. They're angry. They all mob together. And notice that word in verse 29. They're doing all of this confused. Your idols never bring clarity. They always bring confusion. They always bring confusion. It's made even more plain when they all get together. This is so hilarious if it weren't terrifying. Look at verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them, hear this church, did not know why they had come together. There's this huge flash mob. Everyone's like, yeah, that's dumb. That's so bad. I don't even know what you're talking about. This is terrible, right? They're all yelling. They're all crazy. They're saying one thing over here, another thing over here. Most of them, not some of them. This is not a marginal group. The text says most of them are like, I can't even remember why I showed up today. Your idols will always lead you to that particular place. Let me, t- let me help, help us see what I'm talking about. When we make our kids our idols, we build our whole life around them and through them, and then someone asks us the simple question, why did you have children? We can't answer that question. When you make romantic love the centerpiece of your entire life, and then you finally do get married, you ask the question, why did you get married? We say, like, we, we are more we are more apt to quote Jerry Maguire than the scriptures when someone asks that question. Well, she or he completed me, and now I feel like my life is whole, right? There's something about that life that now I, 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 I don't know. I actually am not sure. When we look at a particular job, you moved your entire family across the country. You came to Chicago to get that job so that you could do that work and get that paycheck and live in that neighborhood. And someone says, why do you do the work that you do? I trust it makes a difference, but really it doesn't because we make this little widget, and I'm not even sure what the widget does after my team works on it. We send it off here. I see it on social media every now and then, but I'm actually not really sure. In fact, I'm kind of tired, and I don't really like my job very much, so I'll probably do this whole thing again. We'll move to Dallas later. So you do the whole thing. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down, church? The things that we make central, all of a sudden we get led to this place, into a theater with a mob full of people going, kids are my life, romantic love are my life, this is what my life is, work is my life, and we all go, what are we doing here again? Why are we here? What's this purpose? You were meant to have children to propagate the gospel all over the planet. You were meant to get married that you might display the gospel of how Jesus died for his church and the church is affectionate towards her. Lord, when you get married, you're supposed to have a job so that one day all shall be well. We will see heaven in the intricate details of your work come to life here on earth. That's purpose and your idol will never deliver on that. Neither will mine. They don't even know why they're there. Some in the crowd, verse 33, prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, trying to be authoritative, wanted to make a defense of the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's not an exaggeration. 
two hours, longer than most movies, you have a flash mob who has no idea what's going on just shouting this statement. And why do they do that? They recognize that this was a Jew. In other words, a Jew is coming forward to try to distance themselves, to try to say, hey, this, this whole idea of Paul and the gospel and Jesus, that's a different team than us. And they're like, we don't care, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Your idols never welcome truth. Your idols are never interested in conversation. Your idols are never interested in dialogue. We merely just shout back truth. We never want it to be exposed. We always want to protect our idols. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis. It's like a child, right? You know when kids get really uncomfortable and someone is telling them that they should do something that they don't want to do, what do they do? Put their... I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Your idols make you childish. They do. All of them promise to educate you, mature you, but idols constantly tell you the opposite of maturity. See, true Christian maturity is growing in dependency upon God. All of your idols tell you you can move away from him. You are independent. You are autonomous. You are your own person. You have your own truth. You have your own story. Every lie that an idol tells you is one of independence. And the good news of the gospel is that you can be found in Christ today. It's the opposite. Idols make us childish. Now, when we look at this text, we have to ask the question, where, what's the hope What's the hope for us if we're acting in this particular kind of way? Well, first we need to see that the God of the Bible is altogether different than literally everything that happens in this story. Everything that happens in this story. Idols create confusion. Our God is a God of order. Idols create just shouting matches. Our God is a God of peace. Idols demand blood. Our God is the God who sent his son to give blood for us. Idols are the ones that ultimately leave you completely confused without purpose. Our God is a God of full and complete and beautiful, eternal purpose. See, idols disguise themselves as virtue. Jesus reveals all truth to us. Idols need protection. Jesus is our protection. Idols create confusion. Jesus is our peace. Idols demand that you find a human sacrifice. Jesus says, I'll be your sacrifice. Idols will crush you. Jesus will save you. In each aspect of how these idols are revealed here in ancient Ephesus, we reveal that there is a beautiful response in the cross. Verse 35. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians, uh, the, the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. This is the only person they're letting talk, which is really interesting. There, there may be some homage that they're paying to him, some fear that they have in this particular person, but the town clerk comes and begins to speak to them. And you would think, say, hey, calm down. It's okay. It's not that big a deal. But what this clerk begins to do is say how powerful their God is. So the clerk doubles down. The clerk doubles down on this particular idol. Verse 36, seeing then 
that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. You remember the way that Demetrius spoke about his particular idol, that it was about his guild, it was about his work, it was about his place, it was about Ephesus, it was about Asia, it was about his particular uh, people, it was about his person, about Artemis. And so one of the ways that he begins to disguise, if you will, his greed is in nationalism and in believing that ultimately that Artemis will bring civil order and civil responsibility and civil beauty and all of these sorts of things will come to Ephesus through... Artemis, and therefore the gospel wasn't simply an individual threat, but what Demetrius was saying is the gospel is a threat to our entire city. The gospel is a threat to our entire city. The good news of Jesus, that, that there is only one God, that handmade gods are no gods at all, that is a threat to our entire city. Here's this crazy moment here with the town clerk that says, actually, no, you are more of a threat to what you desire than these men. This is this crazy Jesus juke of idols, right? Idols say, I'll protect you, I'll keep you. You come to me, you can trust me with your future. You can trust me with your finances. I will make you safe. I will bring you provision. I will help you. All of these things that we think, Jesus is not going to give me those things. All of these idols will give me those things. They can never deliver on what they promise. They can never deliver on them. That ultimately, in pursuing them, you crush what you're hoping to get from them. Let me put it to you like this. We've been talking about children, right? Yeah. Children are a great illustration because ultimately they are the little icons that we have created in our own image. We even dress them like us. We put them in the sports that we uh, played when we were kids. We want them to go to the kinds of schools, have the kind of education, live in the kinds of neighborhoods that we did. We want to recreate our experience, which is really interesting because when pressed to it, we go, actually, my childhood wasn't that great. You're like, well, then why are you trying to, well, let's just act like it was great, and we'll try to recreate this for them. Now, what begins to take place is your kids actually start to reject those things, right? My daughter, she's seven years old. She's starting to dress herself the way that she wants to, what she likes to wear. She wants to pursue the things that she desires to do. All of a sudden, at seven years old, if I build my life around my daughter, I'm in real trouble. I'm in real trouble. If you've met my daughter, you get it, Right? Glory is a force to be reckoned with. She will let me know, yes, you are my daddy, I obey you, but I've got some thoughts. I've got some things to say. Jedediah, Micah, Levi, they will all follow suit, right? They will all do this, and at some point, the place that I put them in, the person that I'm trusting in, and the vocation that I want them to take, they will not take that. They will crush the very thing I'm trying to protect through them. Let's talk about romance. Many of us in this room are married. Many of us are single. Yet single or married, you can idolize marriage just the same, either in your longing for it or in the way that you treat it now. 
If you look to your spouse or the idea of a spouse to complete you, like Tom Cruise was way wrong in this. They will not complete you. They will not make you whole. I know that he's our like theological juggernaut in the 21st century. Like he's got thoughts. He jumps on couches. We love him. He does great things, right? Or or the Ellens of this world or the, the Oprahs, right? All these sorts of faces and people that have this idea that this wholeness comes from romantic affection. We begin to place our trust in them. We begin to ask them to do something in us, to reshape something in us they cannot touch. Right? They have an autonomy, a self in and of themselves. They cannot actually afford and give us the things that we desire from them. We actually realize that in marriage, it's not about taking what I want from the other. It's about releasing, giving, serving, surrendering myself. And so actually marriage becomes the place not where I come alive, but I actually learn to die better. It's the exact opposite of what I was hoping for. It actually costs me something. It doesn't complete me. It shows me me in a way that I never wanted to fess up to. I thought I was a really humble person 10 years ago. Real talk. I'm not. By God's grace, I believe that I'm more humble today than I was 10 years ago through the great gift of marriage. But marriage exposed a deep arrogance and pride in my heart. Let me tell you what I mean. I, I wanted to kind of generally talk about struggle, right? We like that word struggle because it feels like maybe a positive thing. I don't want to talk about sin. I didn't want to talk about sin 10 years ago. I didn't want to confess it to my wife. I didn't want to confess it to my church. One of the reasons why is that when I was a young preacher, I got in front of my church and I confessed sin and I had a leader come to me and say, I don't think that you should confess your sin in front of people because my son was in the room and I want him to know he can look up to his pastor, For three years, I didn't share any shortcoming or weakness in the pulpit. Now, you may not have done that publicly, but perhaps in your group, perhaps in your family, you exposed a little bit of your brokenness to somebody, and it wasn't received well. I've been there. I imagine it had something to do with lust or pornography those 13 years ago, something that I wanted to let my church understand that I was wrestling and broken with as well. It may have been part of that three or four year addiction that I had in college and in grad school. And for, for three or four years, I didn't admit the shame. I didn't admit the sorrow. And ultimately, what I was doing during that time, follow me with this church, is I was creating another idol. See, when one idol gets destroyed, I go and make another one. When one idol seems to not lead to where I want, I go and make another one. I go, okay, I want to be a pastor who you love, who you listen to. Your kids go, look, Dad, Pastor Jay, that's our guy. That's him. I'm like, I'll be that dude. And therefore, since then, what the Lord has been breaking down in me is that I need to protect my name, not that he gives me a new one. I don't know what it is for you. That's what it's been for me, this wrestling, this struggle. And the beauty of it is that it leads to the same place. It all leads to this triumphant call of gods who are dead because they are gods who are handmade by me, by you. The good news is that God is the unmade God. Jesus is the unmade Savior of the world who did not come down as a meteorite. He came down as Messiah. He didn't come to show us, to protect our idols. He came to observe, expose, and destroy your idols. So my brother, my sister, if you have an idol today that is crushing, killing, chastising, and breaking you down, the good news of Jesus is he can destroy what is destroying you. 
the good news of Jesus is that he will expose. If you're like, I don't even know what mine is. If you say, Lord, search me and know me, try me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there be any bitter, broken way in me and lead me in the path everlasting, he'll do it. Will you pray it? See, some of us maybe are in different places in this. God is gradual often in the way that he brings us through these things. But when he exposes them, let's put them to death. Because let me tell you our strategy to grow this church. Confess sin. That's it. We're not going to put up banners everywhere. We're not going to do smoke screen and mirrors. We're not going to have a rock and roll band with smoke, right? If that's your thing, love you. I will give you the email of some great churches that do that a lot better than us. What we're going to do is come to the cross and say, I'm dead, broken, messy, dying, shameful, and guilty, and Jesus saved me. And that when he exposes things in my life that I need to repent of, I'm not going to go high and just go, yeah, I struggle with some idols every now and then. I'm going to tell you it was pornography this week. It was lust this week. It was control this week. It was speaking to my wife in a way that does not honor her as my bride. That's what was going on this week. There's still tension. There's frustration. There's pain. I don't like my job because I'm not in charge and I want to be in charge. Those are the things we begin to expose. Those are the things that begin to happen within the culture of our church. Not that we got a great marketing plan, but we got a beautiful Messiah who is changing, transforming, renewing, restoring. You know when that begins to happen, you know (laughs) this is going to be beautiful. Yes, we will begin to continue to share and preach the good news of Jesus, but also others are going to start doing that for us. Ever been to that church? It's real scary because they like talk about sin. They talk about sin, and we can't just like from the front, preacher got the handheld mic sweating like bullets up there, right? But we also get into groups and actually look at one another in the eye and say, how have you been wrestling with that, that idol of greed this week? Can you share that with me, sister? Can you share that with me, brother? And we walk in that together. Tell me what that fear has been like for you, believing that you'll never have children. How are you wrestling with that? How is that being exposed in you? Tell me that fear that your bank account is never where you need it to be, where you, you, just to pay your bills. What's that like? How can we be in that with, are you picking up what I'm throwing down, church? That's what God is up to. He is bringing about obedience in his church through his word. And when this begins to happen, the mobs may not be dismissed immediately, but they will be dismissed. The brokenness and pain and the shouting may not be quieted immediately, but they will be quieted. And so my question for you is where we began. Will you confess your idols or will you continue to justify them? It's when we confess them, expose them, bring them into the light that we begin to see his good, pleasing, and perfect will take root, take shape, take heart right here and right now in our church, in our neighborhood, in our city, in our world. May it be so. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, It's just so silly, and yet we're addicted to it. Making little gods unto ourselves, trusting in stories that we have written and crafted and published for our own glory. Forgive us, God. Forgive me, God. Father, I don't stand up here like a doctor with a room full of patients. We are all patients underneath the authority of you, the great physician. And so heal us. Expose and heal. Father, forgive me for I've sinned. Forgive us for the ways that we've made this about such silly things and acted like it's not crushing and killing us and others around us. 
forgive us for treating sin like bad habits, personality quirks. Forgive us for sitting in silence when someone is lamenting and confessing and repenting. Forgive us for not repenting. Forgive us for believing and even making the church into a crutch of our comfort spiritually and not a people who are confessing and lamenting and broken and celebrating the goodness of Jesus on the regular. And so God, we thank you that though we confess all of these things, that you are faithful to work on us, to transform us, to renew us, to grow us up in Christ. And so we ask that you would do that, Father. Make us into that picture of the spotless bride you promise in Ephesians 5, that one day you will present the church, us, your people. You will present the church to yourself without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. So God, would you begin to weave that truth in our hearts today? We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.